Well, good morning, good morning, good morning. My name is <laughs> My name is Steve Atkins. I'm the lead pastor here at Hillcrest. If you're joining us online, we're really excited that you're with us. Our, our online church family is important to us. Okay, uh, can we do this if you're in the center section because that's where the camera's pointing? Can you just turn around and wave to the camera? Just wave to the people who are online. We're really excited that you're here with us this morning, and I hope that uh, things are going well for you wherever you are, and uh, glad that you, sh- you chimed in. You know, if you're here visiting here this morning, or this is one of your first times here at Hillcrest, or maybe you've come for a while, but I haven't got a chance to meet you yet, uh, I do like meeting new people, and um, so would you do me a favor? If you see me and say, man, I just haven't met our lead pastor yet, Grab me in the foyer just and introduce yourself. Tell me a little bit. I'd love to hear a little bit about your story and, and uh, what brought you to Moose Jaw or what brought you to Hillcrest and uh, get to know you a little bit better. How many of you are in summer mode already? Yeah. In our family, uh, this week has been the transition to summer mode. So um, our second born Judah, he graduated this week and so that was exciting. So they had a grad one night for a grad ceremony, another great night for a grad banquet, and then another night for a grad party. So it was grad, grad, grad all week until the end of Friday night. And uh, so I figured the transition to summer mode had to wait until yesterday. And so yesterday, uh, I thought, what is something that we can do that officially says summer is here? And back in uh, a couple years ago in COVID, we bought this, because we were sort of cooped up in the house, we bought this inflatable for the backyard big uh it's like a it's a pool at the bottom and it's got two slides coming down the top and it's got a little climbing wall it's all inflatable this thing it's got hoses everywhere and you know you hook it up to the electricity and pump and all these things anyhow i hauled that out of the garage and uh, i'm setting it up and it's actually a little bit it's quite elaborate lots of little velcro straps and things that you have to put together and uh i it was like, oh, it's a beautiful hot day. Took my shirt off and put, setting up this pool. And then it took me way longer than I thought. So I know I'm in summer mode because I got my, wor- my first sunburn yesterday. So <laughs> how many of you have already got a sunburn? All right. Yeah. Yeah. The ginger's in the house for sure, right? All right. Well, glad that you're here this morning with us. Uh, this morning's a real, I get to introduce something pretty neat. Um, in our summertime, we have our, uh, many of our kids are in service with us, and so we were brainstorming this spring. We were saying, how can we make summer messages engaging for kids who are in the service? And uh, so we, uh, the, we're launching a series this morning, which is every week we're going to have a speaker come and share their absolute favorite Bible story and, uh, in a sermon. And we're going to hear from a number of voices. I'm excited for a couple things. We've got some favorite voices that are going to come and share in this summer. We're going to hear from Danny DeLong. If you've heard him speak before, it's always a, a treat to have him. So he's coming from Regina to speak to us. We're going to hear from Barrett Kropp, and he's going to uh, share, of course, you know his uh, role in the hockey ministries out of Cairnport and uh, in the sports world in general. If you like sports and sports stories, uh, that'll be exciting when he's here. But the other thing I'm really excited about is we're going to hear from some younger voices. And uh, we wanted to give uh, to platform some younger voices. And we really do think if we are a church that is next generation focused, then that's not just in children's programming, but that's also in uh, raising up others who uh, can be leaders 
not just in the future, but even now as young leaders. And so that this morning, I get to introduce one of our, our younger voices, and I'm excited about, um, about doing that. So let me tell you a few things about Nate Stackrock before I get him to come up here. Uh, Nate is just finishing up his Bachelor of Biblical Studies through Eston College. And um, one of the, the uh, stories I know about Nate along the way in training uh, for ministry is that he had an opportunity to intern in our Dryden Full Gospel Church. That's our sister church in Dryden. And while he was there, he was, uh, you know, he got an opportunity to speak and he got an opportunity to try all the different things that pastors do. And uh, he was getting this great wide experience. And then, of course, it came to the end of his internship, coming to the end of his internship where he was supposed to, you know, go home and it's all over. But in the meantime, uh, a little bit of a situation arose in the church where the senior pastor needed to go and uh, be heavily involved in another area of ministry. And so he came back to Nate and just said, will you stick around and just keep preaching? Because I've got to tend to all these other things. So I think he had this great opportunity. And uh, obviously, it's evidence of the trust that uh, our, the senior pastor in Dryden had in Nate in his ability to minister. And so we're going to have Nate come and minister the word this morning and share his favorite Bible story. Would you give him a great big Hillcrest welcome? Thank you. Yeah, so as Steve said, my name is Nate Statrek. Uh, my parents are Kent and Laura Statrek, who I'm sure you know. They've been on the stage multiple times or they're in the kids' ministry. Um, yeah, and I grew up in this church. Many of you know me from when I was just a little, little kid. Uh, some of you haven't met me. Um, yeah, and I, like I said, like Steve said also, I just finished up my fourth year of biblical studies training at Eston College. Just a shameless plug that it is a great school. You should send your kids there, not Briarcrest. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> Uh, no, I'm a bit of a, an Eston Homer, so I like to, to just razz Briarcrest a little bit. Um, and something, something to know about me is that I really like food. Now, I know that everybody likes food, but I maybe would call myself a foodie a little bit. I don't know if that's really the right term necessarily, but that's maybe what I call myself. You know, I... Uh, me and my girlfriend Tiana have really just gotten into the coffee scene a little bit. She just bought an espresso machine. We're just trying to get into that a little bit. I just bought myself a nice new coffee scale so I can weigh it all out. No more pre-ground can of nabob in the coffee machine anymore. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to, trying to kind of up my food game a little bit because food is something... I just really enjoy, and my, you know, the more you have good food, the more you crave good food. When I'm on a trip, I love to try new restaurants, try new things. When I go on a family vacation, my first question to my parents is always, what are we doing for lunch? And my dad always rolls his eyes, and he says, You're, the way to your heart is through your stomach, isn't it? Uh, and I would say yes. But when it comes to traveling and food, I believe that, like, food is culture, and that, when you go to a new, a new place, whether that's overseas somewhere or maybe um, you're getting a chance to try uh, 
uh, First Nations food or just foods of different cultures, I believe that actually that connects you into that culture in a new and different way. Um, last summer, I was in the United Kingdom uh, for a, a missions trip there for about three and a half weeks. Uh, and, you know, people, people joke about the UK's food and how it's all kind of bland and whatnot. But, hey, let me tell you, they know good bacon. And they know it better than we do. And, man, is it good. In Mexico, uh, we did a trip there a few years back, too, with some people from, from this church as well. And the rice and the beans there are really different to how we do it. They all use different sorts of spices. And, like, you'd, you'd eat this rice and you thought, man, I thought rice had no flavor until I had this rice. With Middle Eastern food, you f- they also have like this value on spices and all sorts of different flavors that you've never had before. And when you, when you have Middle Eastern food and then you try like some sort of American food again, you're like, man, this is so bland. We, we don't like flavor here, it seems like. And I, I just find that so funny. Uh, and I think also something about, another thing about food is that food is something that really brings us together. That when you think of your, your favorite holiday or maybe a, a big event in your life, often food is something that's really connected to that. Think about, you know, it's Christmas morning, you've already done your presents and whatnot, and it comes to maybe about 2 or 3 o'clock, and you can smell the turkey cooking. Oh, yeah, or Thanksgiving, it's like that too. You can smell the turkey cooking, and you're getting hungry, and your mouth's starting to water as you're thinking about that turkey. Or think about even like a Super Bowl party, you know. Everybody has their Super Bowl snacks. And when I watch the Super Bowl, I love chips and guac and some wings. That's my, that's my Super Bowl snack. So food is something that brings us together. We, do, we eat together for a reason. It brings us together. But as much as food can be a good thing, food also can kind of mess with our minds a little bit. Our cravings and, and our desires can be really weird. I know my mom talks about when she was pregnant with me that she craved pickles and onions and KFC. When she was pregnant with my brother, um, she craved Pepsi and ice cream. Cravings can be weird, and our desires are weird. Um, And and we also sometimes crave food even though we don't really need it. Uh, So I'm going to shed some light on a pretty common experience, I'm sure. Some of you may feel exposed by this. Some of you may feel vindicated. Your results might vary a little bit. But picture this. It's maybe 8 or 9 o'clock in the evening. You've had dinner. You've probably maybe done the dishes. You're kind of done for the day. Maybe you're watching some TV or you're reading a book or playing a game of some sort. And then you start to get a little snacky. And so you get up off the couch and you head to the kitchen And you come to the fridge. Now, this is a pretty small fridge. This is the fridge out of the office. So it's pretty small. It's it's a little smaller than the one you probably have in your house. But it's the the best fridge I could find, and I didn't want to haul the one all the way from the youth room. Uh, So you come to the fridge, and you open up its veritable cornucopia of snacks. Now, most of this isn't snacks. There's some cheese and some cream cheese dip and some sauce in here, but you get the point. Uh, You come to the fridge... And you take a look, and it has more food than some people could ever imagine existed. You know, your great-grandparents are probably like, how does someone have this much food in their house at one time? This is incredible. And you look in the fridge, and you go, wow, there's no food in this house. (laughs) 
Now, again, I'm sure parents, you've probably heard this from your kids. Parents, I'm sure you've probably said this. I know I've said this lots of, you know, our, our fridge or our pantry is full of food. But yeah, we look in there and we go, eh, I'm not satisfied. There's something missing here. There's no food in this fridge. I don't believe it. And so we have this problem of we're never, we're never quite satisfied. We're always looking for something more. And this, this desire, you know, it drives our, our stomachs and our, our, our hungers, uh, but it also drives other things. You know, this desire, it drives our economy. It drives consumerism, and it drives so much of our lives. And with this now, I want to transition into my favorite Bible story. Sorry. My iPad decided we're going to look at something else besides my sermon. One second, sorry. There we are. Anyways, my favorite Bible story, and this is one that's actually kind of come recently to me, is the story of Solomon. So if you're new to the Bible or you don't know Solomon, Solomon is the son of King David. King David was the, one of the first kings to kind of unite the monarchy of Israel. He's called a man after God's own heart. That God said, I, he said he was going to give him this kingdom, and he made this promise to David that he said, if you and your sons follow me, you will always have a son of David on the line, on the, on the, on the throne of Israel. And so Solomon is the successor to David. Uh, now, he isn't David's oldest son, but he is one of the older sons. Now, in David's old age, he's getting weak, and it's time for David to pass on the throne. Uh, and so David's oldest son, Abijah, assumes that it's going to be for him. He's the oldest son. He's of David's first wife. David had, had many wives, and so Abijah is the oldest son. He should be first in line to the throne. But then some, some sneaky stuff starts to happen. Solomon's mother Bathsheba decides that she wants her son to be king. So she and the prophet Nathan come up with this plot, and they approach David, and they say, hey, David, remember that promise you made where Solomon was going to be king? And, and, you know, David's old and decrepit, and he's like, oh, yes, I remember that. And so he he decides Solomon is going to be the king. Now, Abijah has been celebrating and believing he's going to be king. And he's like, what? This is going to happen? And Solomon, Solomon threatens Abijah, and he says, I am the king. And so Abijah, Abijah runs away, and he's afraid. So then Solomon, he, kind of, he takes over the kingdom. And the first thing he does is he secures his kingdom. Now, this, this might sound like a, a smart move, but... When you, when you talk about securing the kingdom in this time, that means that actually Solomon's going to go and kill all of his enemies. That David had some enemies or some people that, you know, were maybe political opponents to him or to Solomon. And so Solomon goes and he, he kills a whole bunch of them or he banishes them, even going so far as to killing his brother Abijah, who is, is the other one who is in line for this throne. And so immediately we go, whoa. This is David's son. This is the king of Israel. We just had David, who's this man after God's own heart, but then Solomon is already starting to look a little, whoa. Not only that, but then Solomon marries the daughter of Pharaoh, who God said that to the Israelites that they are not supposed to marry outside of their own, their own people, and they're not supposed to, to make alliances with Egypt because they're supposed to trust in the Lord their God. And then I find it funny if he... 
he is going, and he, he's thinking about, he's going to maybe build this temple to the Lord. And I liked, in, in my translation, it says that Solomon did, was loyal to the, to the Lord God, except for the fact that he offered thousands of lambs to other gods. I just find that kind of funny. So Solomon is going to these high places, and he's offering meat to idols, and he's, he's marrying people he shouldn't be, and we're like, oh my gosh, this is going bad. This is bad. He's doing all this, and then it seems like out of nowhere, God appears to him in this dream, and God asks Solomon, Solomon, what, what is it that I should give you? So Solomon thinks for a moment, and so he asks, he asks God, he says, he says, Lord, give me wisdom to rule this kingdom well. And God appreciates this ask. And so he says, I'll give you this wisdom, but then because you didn't ask for it, I'm actually going to give you wealth and riches and fame beyond your wildest dream. That's a pretty, I wish God would give me that dream every now and then. That'd be pretty sweet. So, but even, so Solomon is doing all this bad stuff, but he still gets this dream. And so we're kind of supposed to be like, is this guy good? What's going on with this guy? We're a little confused about where he stands. But now he has this promise. He has this promise of wisdom. He has, he has this whole kingdom that he's ruling. He has more wealth, more fame than anyone could ever imagine. And so Solomon decides it's time to build the Lord a temple with all this wealth that he has. So we're like, this is a pretty good thing. So Solomon, Solomon takes seven years and he builds this temple and he, he adorns it with gold and it's got the cedars of Lebanon, which is these great, these awesome trees. It's like the best wood you can find in the country. Excuse me there. Uh, And he builds this temple, and then right after, Solomon decides, I'm going to build a palace. And so he builds his palace, actually right beside the temple. And where the temple took seven years to build, the palace takes 13. And it's like twice as big as the temple. It's got twice as much gold. All of this is going on. Solomon just keeps building. Solomon keeps looking in the fridge. Even though he has his kingdom, he has this promise of wealth, is this promise that if he stays faithful to God, his son will reign. And he looks in the fridge and he goes, there's no food in this fridge. So he builds this palace. It's way bigger than the temple. And we're supposed to go, huh, this is seeming a little weird. You know, I feel like if God promised you more wealth and fame than anybody on earth, I feel like you might be able to say, like, I'd be content. I'm okay. I don't need to build myself more. But Solomon keeps going. In 1 Kings 10.23, it says, Solomon was wealthier and wiser than any of the kings of the earth. So he, he keeps acquiring more wealth. Now, this is what God promised, But Solomon just keeps acquiring, keeps acquiring, keeps acquiring wealth. In 1026, it then says, Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses. So in that time, that's that's a huge army. That's a huge army. That's a lot of horses and a lot of men. That's a lot of security for yourself. It then goes on in 1 Kings 11, it says, Solomon had 700 royal wives and 300 concubines, and his wives had a powerful influence over him. When Solomon became old, his wives shifted his allegiance to other gods. So all this time, Solomon just keeps 
acquiring more. He looks in the fridge and he says, there's no food in here. And he says, I'm going to find something to satisfy myself. I got to find something. You know, he goes in the freezer maybe and he finds there's no, there's no bagel bites to eat. Or he, he goes in the, in the bread box and finds there's no bagels or, or whatever. He, he looks other places and he still isn't satisfied. He still craves more. And he, and he finds it all lacking. He finds the things of this earth to be futile in, in meeting his deepest needs and desires. So then Solomon comes to the end of his life. And, and he becomes thoughtful. Many people write their memoirs or, or write an autobiography at the end of their life when they start to become thoughtful and they look, they look back on their life and they start to think, did I have a good life? Did I, did I do this right? After all of his searching and all of his opening this fridge, hoping that something new magically appears there to fulfill him, right at the end of his life, Solomon declares in Ecclesiastes, he says, futile, futile, laments the teacher. Absolutely futile. Everything is futile. That seems a little bit like dark and depressing, eh? At the end of his life, he just says, it's all, it's all worthless. It's all futile. And so this is what leads, you know, a lot of people when they read Ecclesiastes are confused because it seems so depressing when we know that the Bible is a message of hope for the world. Why is there this depressing statement? This makes no, this doesn't compute. And then, so Solomon continues of, he, he laments and he is saying, you know, he tried, he tried to be wise on his own and that that didn't, that didn't work. So he tried self-indulgence and materialism. He, he acquires chariots and horses and, and all these wives, and he keeps acquiring wealth. But that didn't fill the hole in his heart. That didn't fill that, that hunger, you know? His stomach still wants more. And so he tries to be a workaholic. He tries working day and night, thinking, maybe if I just work hard enough, I can get this. I can fill this hole in my heart. And that doesn't work either. And so Solomon, Solomon concludes in Ecclesiastes 2.24, he says, there is nothing better for people than to eat and drink and to find enjoyment in their work. My version is a little bit different than the one on the screen or the ones in the pews. Um, but he says that. He says there's, there's nothing better than for people to find, to eat and drink and find enjoyment in their work. I remember the first time I read this, I feel like I hadn't read Ecclesiastes much, and then I did a class on it a couple years ago, and I read this, and I was like, this is in the Bible? I remember reading this and thinking, like, why am I here if there's, why am I sitting in class if there's nothing better than to eat and drink and, and find some enjoyment? It makes no sense. And it sounds defeatist and just as materialistic as he used to be, but actually, believe it or not, Solomon is, is trying to make a larger point here. He continues uh, in this next verse. He says, I also perceived that this ability to find enjoyment comes from God. For no one can eat and drink and experience joy apart from him. For to the one who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy. But to the sinner, he gives the task of amassing wealth. 
only to give it to the one who pleases God. The task of the wicked is futile, like chasing the wind. So when Solomon, when Solomon comes to the end of his life and he's chased all this stuff and, and believe it, Israel has had a golden age. You know, Israel has never been more powerful. They've never had more land. Their country is flourishing. The fridge is, is stock full. You can't fit another thing in that fridge. It looks like my fridge at home that has so much stuff in it that sometimes we're like, where do we even put all this stuff? And, and he still says, There's, I can't, I'm not satisfied. And so he comes to this realization that he says, to find enjoyment comes from God. And he says that, that actually, when we find enjoyment in this life, when we find, when we eat and drink and we try and find enjoyment, that actually comes from God. But in some ways, I, you, you know this in your own life of, of this kind of, this kind of doesn't still fulfill. And Solomon realizes that, that it's God who gives this ultimate joy. And not only, not only does God give us physical food to satisfy but actually, God shows that there is there's better food. There is better bread. There is water that quenches all thirst. And this, this, this problem of this deep hunger isn't just Solomon's problem. We all have this problem, right? We all, we all live in this consumeristic culture. We come to the, to the fridge of life again and again, and we, we realize there's not an answer here. I'm still hungry. I still want something else. When the, when, the, when the dregs of life, when the hard parts of life, you know, get to us, when we're feeling, oh, life is futile, we, we come to this fridge looking for something to fulfill us. And we realize it's not there, so we look, we look somewhere else. We feel this desire so deeply. I love C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably that earthly, measure, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand, never to, be, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly pleasures, for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a copy, an echo, or mirage. I must keep in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside, I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others do the same. I love that quote. That if I have a desire in me that, that can't be met by this world, maybe I'm meant for another world. Maybe there's something bigger for me. Something else. And I think Lewis is touching on this here. And Solomon touches on that too. 
of he, he looks at food and drink and enjoyment, and he doesn't say that those things are bad. If we make those the main thing of our life, it's futile. It's chasing the wind. But like Lewis says, those things point us to something bigger. When we eat and our stomach is full, but yet we don't feel fulfillment in our soul, that points us to something bigger. And so actually what, what Solomon's trying to tell us and Lewis is trying to tell us is that we actually we need to live in the hand of God. That what, we, what we're truly desiring is the bread of life, right? That we need food and water that will truly quench that thirst. And again, I said it earlier, this struggle is not Solomon's. Throughout time, humanity struggles with this. We thirst for more. We live in a consumeristic culture that says, if you want something, go out and get it right now before someone else takes it, possibly. In an age where any product is just a click away, it's, it's a relevant message to us that when we chase those things, it's futile. It's like chasing the wind. It's in our broken nature. You know, we overeat at the dinner table thinking maybe we'll be satisfied. We overspend at the mall, thinking that, that maybe, maybe that'll fulfill us. We overstep the boundaries of marriage, thinking that, that maybe if I'm with that person, I'll be, I'll be happy. We binge watch TV, or we go on TikTok or Instagram, and we amuse ourselves to death, thinking that maybe if I can just distract myself, or maybe that will fulfill my hunger in myself. But we, those, don't, those don't fulfill us. And so Solomon realizes this at the end of his life, is that there's something bigger than these things that we need. There's something more. I'm kind of flying through my message here. Uh, would someone maybe go to tell the kids workers that I might be done in maybe 10 minutes. Perfect. Okay. So, we need something bigger. Now, if you want to turn your, into your Bible to John 6, we see here that, that Jesus has, has just finished feeding the 5,000. He sees, he's teaching all these people. They're sitting on the hillside. And they have no physical food. And so God, Jesus comes and he takes you know, these bread and these, these fish and, and he prays and he multiplies them and he feeds them all. He feeds their bellies. He feeds their physical need. And, and then he decides, after he's done his teaching, he, he decides, let's go across the Sea of Galilee. So him and his disciples, they head, out, they head across the, the sea. But the crowd catches wind that, that Jesus is heading over this way. And, and so they decide, let's, let's follow him. Maybe we can get some more food, from, from free food from Jesus. Uh, one of the, the best tips in ministry I ever heard, especially for youth ministry, is that if you bring food, they will come. And I think it's so, so true. If you tell a bunch of teenage boys that there's a bunch of free snacks somewhere, they'll be there. Um, and so this crowd follows Jesus. They run around the Lake of Galilee to meet him on the other side. And they say, Jesus, Jesus, give us more food. 
And, and Jesus sees this, and Jesus recognizes their need for physical food. Many of them are poor. Many of them do have a physical need, and Jesus sees that, and he has compassion. But Jesus sees their deeper need. So in John 6.27, he says, Do not work for the food that disappears, but for the food that remains to eternal life, the food which the Son of Man will give you. That's what it is. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for the food that doesn't spoil, but the one that endures to eternal life. In verse 35, Jesus then says, I am this bread of life. The one who comes to me will never go hungry. And the one who believes in me will never be thirsty. Oh, we found it. That's what Solomon is telling us. That is the drink that, and the food that never goes dry. Jesus tells these people on the shore that it's ultimately him who will fulfill their need. And that that's where they ought to focus their efforts. He changes our, our perspective. He changes where our eyes are focused. Not to these earthly things that, that we, we enjoy them now. And we want to find enjoyment in them now. But there's a deeper need than that. And that's, that, I think that's like part of the heart of the gospel. Is that that Jesus comes so that we can be satisfied in this life and the next. He comes to tell these hungry people of Galilee, and he tells people today that there is food for you, food that truly satisfies. And as, as the church, we are to be those people who, who have tasted and seen of the Lord, that's to taste and see that he is good, that when we get in his presence, that that fills our souls. That fills that need. I don't know who first coined it, but somebody once said that we have a Jesus-shaped hole in our heart that we need filled, that nothing else can fill that Jesus-shaped hole. This doesn't mean that in this life, you know, we're not going to still desire things. We, we are still... Uh, subject to, you know, the winds of culture and, and our, our stomachs and our, our wanting for consumerism. You know, just because I can say I am satisfied in Christ doesn't mean that I might not still want a PS5, which is, that's hard still. That's a hard battle to fight. But there's a deeper contentment out there that only comes from his presence. It only comes from the hope that one day I'll be truly satisfied in eternal life. And so as people who are sustained by God's presence, who eat and drink of him, are we, are we going to his presence enough? Are we going to the table enough? Are, we getting, are you getting into his presence? Are you... Are you asking him, Lord, sustain me today? Lord, give me this day my daily bread. Or are we still going to the fridge when we're hungry and realizing that we're not going to be fulfilled here and looking for something else? Have you ever met somebody who 
Like, you can just see it in them. They're just like, wow, you know Jesus. You are just content in him. I feel like I've, I've met a few people like that, and I'm just in awe of them to see just how content they are in Jesus. So people see that on you. When we, when we are in the presence of Christ, when we, are in, when we are working with the Holy Spirit, and we are asking him to be the one that sustains us and fills us, that shows to people. People recognize that. I, I know plenty of people who have stories of, of we're out doing evangelism or they're just in a Walmart and they're just like filled with this joy and they're, they're full of just the contentment of Christ and someone comes to them or, you know, in a time of crisis with a friend, they ask, how are you so content? How are you so happy? How do you have so much joy? And we can answer, it's, it's in Jesus. I have found water that, that quenches all thirst. I have found bread that I will never go hungry on. And so yeah, my, my challenge to you today is then, are, are you getting into God's presence enough? Are you spending time with him? Are you letting yourself be sustained by him? And today I wanted to do communion. If you didn't get it, it's out in the, in the foyer. Or, uh, but I wanted to do communion today because Communion for, is, a, is a remembrance. And sometimes as people, we need to be reminded that we need to come to the table, that we need to eat of him and not look to, you know, our earthly fridge. And it reminds us to come to the table, and it also creates a space for us to come to the table. There's a, there's a reason why, you know, communion is called the Lord's table. is because it, it invites us in for just a moment, to, to dine at his banquet table, to be in his presence and say, Lord, and to remind ourselves, Lord, I need you to sustain me. You know, this physical bread won't sustain us for long. I don't know if this is even bread, if you could call it that. It won't sustain us for long, but it reminds us that, Jesus, there is something bigger, that it's your spirit that sustains me, that it is the hope of heaven that sustains me, So yeah, it points us back to Jesus and it points us towards this heaven, heavenly reality where we'll sit at the banquet table. So we're going we're gonna to do communion now. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he says, this is my body broken for you. And Jesus, we thank you for your body. Jesus, we thank you for this food that sustains us. Lord Jesus, we want to be people who are sustained by you. That we're not looking to the fridge of this life for fulfillment, but that we are looking to you. Let's take the bread. I've always appreciated in communion that Jesus had the foresight to make us eat the bread first so that then we can wash it down so we're not thirsty after we take communion. <laughs> and so after supper, Jesus took the cup and he says, this is my blood which has been shed for you. And Jesus, we thank you for your blood. We thank you, Jesus, that this is what 
allows us to have access to that bread of life, to that satisfaction, that fulfillment, is that you went and you died so that we could be satisfied in you, that we could come to you when we are hungry, Lord Jesus. Lord, I ask that you would remind us, Lord, that we are clean and that we can come to you when we hunger and thirst in this world. Yeah, thank you, Jesus. I'm going to invite the the band back up. Yeah, so today, as you go from this place, ask yourself, am I... Am I looking at the things of this world to fulfill me? Am I looking for money or for the love of another person to fulfill me? Or am I looking for, you know, my own security to fulfill me? Or am I looking to the one who who truly has me, who has promised to take care of me like a good father does? Yeah, because he wants to fulfill you. If you ask, he will come. Yeah, I'm going to turn it over to the band now. Can you please stand and we'll respond to communion and worship.
band us together. some dancing?